reading out of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. It says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, supper. Does anyone use that word instead of the more popular dinner? Supper? I've only ever heard the word used in church at the Lord's Supper and one other place, my grandparents' home in Chillicothe, Missouri. I remember visiting each year for Christmas our family and my dad's three siblings and all my cousins. We'd be together at grandma and grandpa's place. There were nine of us kids running around on their property and it was a kid's dream. They had a, a huge field, a wooded area, a barn where we'd climb up in the loft and, and throw dirt clods at each other. Uh, someone after the, the second service said, are you sure those were dirt clods? <laughs> I don't know. They did have chickens and, and some other animals too. But it was a great time. They had a cellar, uh, so we'd play bomb shelter or other end-of-the-world kinds of games that kids do. Uh, Grandpa had a tractor, and he would uh, hitch up a little wagon and drive it around the property and let the older kids, when they were old enough and responsible enough, drive the younger kids. It was so much fun, some of my favorite memories. Uh, we were wild city kids enjoying the rural life. Uh, for you guys right here, we were keeping it rural. Yeah. <laughs> We'd play, I know, I'm sorry. We, we would play for hours and hours until the sun would go down, even after dark sometimes. The only time we came in was when we heard the bell. My grandma actually had a porch bell out back, and she would ring the bell, and she'd tell us, wash up and get ready for supper. Again, not dinner, but supper. Supper was very different from what I had come to know as dinner. Supper in Chillicothe was less about uh, the food, more about the gathering. It was an important time of day. We'd all come together at the same time, at the same table. There's no grabbing and going somewhere else to eat. There were no TV trays in the house because you did not watch TV while you ate dinner. Supper, sorry, supper. You actually looked at those around the table. It's kind of strange, I know. You came to the table, you stayed at the table. We didn't have cell phones to distract us back then, uh, but even if we thought about pulling out a cell phone at that supper table, we would have gotten first the death stare, and if that didn't work, we would have gotten a little love smack from my grandpa right behind the back, back of the head. It's true. If you, if you want to hear the story of the one time in my life that I really got whopped pretty good, ask me on the way out today. I'd love to share. This was supper. There were expectations about how we would be together at that table. We'd share what we'd been up to. Uh, we'd listen to each other. We'd make eye contact. We would respect those that were gathered there at the table. After all, we're a family, and we're sitting down to a meal together. I loved supper time. The greatest thing, however, about this was not the food, 
like I said, although my grandma was a great cook, the greatest thing was just being together. Do you know what I'm talking about? A supper table. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, he speaks of their practice of supper time. In their case, it was the Lord's Supper. That special meal that they'd eat when they gathered together for worship. It was time to remember what Jesus Christ had done for them, how he had washed them clean, given them to each other as family, as brothers and sisters, brought them together, very different backgrounds, very different cultures, brought them all together to be part of one family, one body. And I'm guessing that when their church was founded by Paul just a few years before he sends uh, this letter, they experienced genuine love and care for each other. I assume they looked a lot like the church in Acts 2, which we saw a few weeks ago. The needs of the community were on their mind. They were thinking of others first. They were preferring one another, you know, being Christians. But by the time he writes to them, things had taken a, a, a wrong turn. You may know that there was great disparity, economically speaking, in the church at Corinth and in many of Paul's churches. There were uh, the rich and the poor. There were the haves and the have-nots. But in Christ, in the family of God, all were to be treated as one united family, dear brothers and sisters of each other. None were to be seen as superior or inferior to the rest. Why not? Because the heart of the gospel, which is what had united them together, which is what made them family, the heart of the gospel is that you're saved by faith. You're saved by the grace of God, not works, not your performance, not your pedigree, your income level doesn't matter, your rank and status doesn't matter. It might matter in other circles, but it counts for nothing at the foot of the cross. Only Jesus is to be exalted among his people. But we live in a fallen world, and God's people, unfortunately, can become too much at home in a culture that doesn't share God's values. That's exactly what we find in the church at Corinth. Some had taken on the values of their earthly zip code, the Roman Empire, and forgotten that they are to live as citizens of another place. When you come together, Paul uses that phrase five times in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 34. If you're not there yet, you can turn your Bibles there. Chapter 11, 17 to 34. When you come together, and he's clearly not applauding them for when they come together. In fact, he says, when I think about your gatherings, I do not commend you. And knowing Paul's pastoral heart, we can hear the anguish in his voice, even with that comment. He wants to commend them. I want to say to you, well done, keep it up. I love to hear God's people are living for him in a dark world, but I can't say that to you now, can I? But that doesn't mean he's silent. No, he says something. In fact, what we read in this passage, some of the harshest things he says to any church in any of his letters. Why so harsh? Because he loves them? Because he wants to see God's people flourish? He wants them to learn to course correct by the Spirit of God in them and in community with each other to course correct so that God won't have to keep doing it for them. When you come together, when the church gathers for worship, particularly in your coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, when you share that meal, Paul says, that remembrance of all Jesus has done for all of you, 
his body broken, his blood shed. It should be an incredible display of love and kindness and grace and preferring one another, but Paul says that's not what's happening, is it? No, you're doing something very different, something shameful when you come together. We heard verses 23 to 26 read uh, by Jason, uh, that part of the, this passage in Roman, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that we usually hear on the first Sunday of the month when we come and observe the Lord's Supper together. But there's a lot more going on in the context, what's before and what's after that, that passage. We use those four verses as part of our first Sunday of the month liturgy, and we should. Paul uses those four verses in the context of a big rebuke to the church at Corinth. And I don't know how God's going to use his word this morning in each of our lives or in the life of our church But we ought to pray, whatever I need most, Lord, say it to me as individuals. And as a church, we ought to pray, whatever we need most, Lord, say it to us. Is that your prayer this morning? And maybe you'd say, you know what, it's not. Maybe your prayer would be, God, help me to be that kind of person that would pray that kind of thing. I'm not there. I'm not there where I'm saying, speak to me, whatever. But I want to be, so Lord, help me get there. Maybe that's your prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Whatever you have to say. There's an outline in the bulletin, if you like. Uh, Three things we'll consider regarding the Lord's Supper this morning. What supper time had become, uh, what supper time ought to be, and we'll end with it's time for supper, so get cleaned up. So first, what supper time had become, verse 17 But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? It's like a frustrated parent, right? After their their kid's done something really ridiculous, and they're like, what am I supposed to say to you? What do you expect me to say to you right now? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So imagine hearing someone come up and they say to us, you've all come here to worship this morning, right? Well, it's not God that you're worshiping. Basically, that's what Paul says to them. When you come together for the supper, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. I think ouch would be an understatement. A little uh, background for their practice of the Lord's Supper I think would be helpful. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month, we don't have a full meal now we will next Sunday at threefold, and I would encourage you really to come out, especially if you've never been before. It's a wonderful opportunity to be together with your church family and just gratitude and getting to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. It's a dear time. It really is. But our regular practice of the Lord's Supper is not a full meal, but theirs was. The church gathered, you may know, not in buildings like this, but in homes. And to accommodate large gatherings, uh, they had to have big homes. And to have a big home, you had to have a wealthy person. 
We're not sure, but it's likely that the, the richer, the more affluent members of the community would provide the bread and the wine for everyone that gathered, but then you'd be responsible to bring your own food for the meal. If they followed the liturgy Paul says was handed down to him in verse 23, then the order for the Lord's Supper at Corinth was break the bread, eat the meal, drink the cup. So the bread and the cup equally provided, equally consumed, we could say. But the meal, the way things were going down at the meal, that's what got Paul irked. The rich, it seems, were not considering the needs of the whole community, especially their poor brothers and sisters who had less of everything, including food. The poor were sometimes showing up late, not because they forgot to set their sundial, but because their masters or their bosses didn't feel the need to let them off early for church. By the time they got to the meal, the rich had gone ahead and started without them. Back in 1978, a guy named Ron Sider, maybe some of you know that name, he, uh, he ticked off a bunch of people when he wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Now, it's not exactly the same context, but the issue of the rich not caring for their poor brothers and sisters in God's family, that's the same point Paul is making in Corinth. The rich were eating their own meals, and let's just imagine for a little bit, you can just substitute whatever else in here, but really, really good barbecue and a lot of it, all the expensive sides, not the ones that come with your meal, the ones you pay more for. They're eating that, and the poor are going hungry. Verse 21, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. One has too little, while another has too much at the same meal. Their supper was not like our potluck this next uh, Sunday when we bring a lot and we all have enough to share with everyone. It's more like showing up at the Hollywood Bowl with your own picnic basket. Anyone ever done that? Sat on the lawn, sat in the seating area, you bring your own picnic basket, pack it up. Some have uh, two-buck chuck, that is Charles Shaw wine that used to be sold at $2 a bottle. You can find it at the grocery outlet bargain market. Others might bring a fine wine, like a 1959 Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. I have a friend who drinks wine. I don't know what that is. It's expensive. I know it's expensive. Some might have a box of crackers with a can of Easy Cheese. Do you know what Easy Cheese is? It's an aerosol can that you can spray the cheese directly into your mouth and then throw the cracker in later. Or go crackerless altogether, some of you guys. Others have what I'd say is real cheese. Overpriced artisan crackers you get at Whole Food with the good cheese. $14 a pound, hard cheese. Please, it's about the hard cheese, isn't it? Yes doesn't come out of a can. Your means determine what you can put in your picnic basket and how much food you can have too. It's what you bring and eat. You made it at home. You bought it on the way. You don't typically plan to share it with others who gather there at the Hollywood Bowl, do you? No. There's no expectation that you would. But there's every expectation that you would share what you have at the Lord's Supper so that all could eat and, if possible, eat well. This expectation, sharing with one another, it was not happening at the church in Corinth. 
The rich and the poor may have been at the same tables together. That's possible. And if so, the rich are, imagine being at the same table, gorging themselves on their food and drink in the presence of hungry fellow Christians. That's shameful. But what's more likely is that the rich and the poor weren't even sitting in the same rooms. They were separated based on their their socioeconomic realities. The Roman house in Paul's day had a room called the triclinium. It was a nice dining room, comfy couches, great place to eat. Another room called the atrium, and we could think overflow setting or seating. The well-to-dos, the haves, they're invited to, uh, to join others of their social class to eat in the best room while the rest find their way to the cafeteria. That's kind of what it was like. We could also say the rich were fly- flying first class, like Emirates. The poor were flying coach. Spirit, yes. <laughs> or frontier. Either one, you take your life in your own hands for that $60 you save. Yeah. They were separated for the meal based on the world's estimation of their worth. And you'd expect that from the world, but it was happening in the church. And if that's accurate, they weren't even eating in the same place. They would miss the, the point of the whole meal to break bread together to drink the cup together, to eat the supper together, to be at the same table because they had one and the same Lord who made them family. Jesus had made them one, but they were breaking up the body. They were dividing, being divisive, what God had joined together. My grandparents never said, you kids don't contribute much to the family. You can't do much. You don't own any land. You can't improve the social status of our culling name around town. So grab this and go eat out back. We'll be having salmon and steak and baked potatoes. Really good stuff in here. You guys grab, here, we got these Lunchables, three for a dollar. (laughs) At the discount section of the bargain market, take these out back. They never said that. We ate what they ate, and we all ate until we were full. We ate together. That's what family does. Because of the Corinthians' actions, which had more to do with Roman culture than the kingdom of God, Paul says to the rich in their context, if this is how you're going to come to the gathering, the church meeting, just stay home. Gorge yourself in the privacy of your big fat house. You're doing more harm than good by coming like this. Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? It's amazing you've gotten so far off track. So knock it off by the Spirit. Again, by the Spirit, by the grace of God in community with others who love you. Knock it off or stay home. What this meal had become was a supper, but Paul can't even call it the Lord's Supper. It has nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with Christ's sacrificial giving of his life for others. That's not what their supper looks like. That's what supper time had become in Corinth, and in 27 to 34, we get some help with what it instead ought to be. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, 
eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it won't be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And I bet they were really happy. He's like, I'm not going to tell you everything that's in my head right now. About the other stuff, I'll share more later. Thank you, Paul, for not continuing on now. This is too much already. I'm sure they were feeling that way. Uh, From these verses, we can say that supper time ought to be a time for two things, a time to look in and a time to look around. So first, a time to look in. Paul mentions examining ourselves in verse 28, judging ourselves in verse 31. This points to our need to see ourselves rightly, to scrutinize ourselves in light of what Jesus has done for us, to question our motives, to search our hearts, to ask, am I here for the Corinthian, right, at this meal? Am I here this morning for us in Seal Beach? Am I here for God or is it for me? Quite often when we come to the Lord's Supper, on the first Sunday of the month, you'll hear uh, just before the bread and the cup are, are passed, what I'd call a, a call to self-examination, right? You, you're familiar with this. Something like, take a few moments to consider your life. This past week, your sins before God. And take this time to repent and get ready to receive what Jesus has done for you. I think I said those very words a couple weeks ago right here at the Lord's Supper. And I think those are important and legitimate things for us to to consider. But if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, our looking can terminate or end with looking in and we might never look around. Isn't that right? In other words, our examination and our repentance that follows might be so vertically directed to me and God, my right relationship with him, that I miss the horizontal dimensions, my right relationship with others. Does that make sense? Right? That, that the vertical and the horizontal, they go together? How can you say, I love God, while you hate your brother, John says, 1 John 4? How, Paul says, can you say you're eating the Lord's Supper, His Supper, and have no regard, actually ill regard, for the hungry ones among you, your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died? And he would say, you can't. That's why it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Supper time's a time to look in, but also, perhaps especially, a time to look around, to discern the body, verse 29, to wait for one another, verse 33. Discerning the body. What, what body are we talking about? What's Paul talking about? Some say the body of Christ represented the bread and the cup, that we think rightly about this sacrifice and what it means, the significance. Others say the body of Christ meaning the people of God, The church, we discern the body. I don't think we have to pick between the two of them. There's such a close connection, such a union between the person of Christ, the supper he invites us to participate in, and the people for whom the supper is provided. I think Paul's big point, we can get bogged down on, well, what's that about, and who's that, and what, what are we talking about? His big point is you're paying attention to the wrong things when you get together for worship. You're concerned about yourself, your status, your stomach. 
you should be concerned about the spiritual reality of what's happening when the church gathers to share that meal. Without discernment, you miss that. You miss seeing the point of the meal. You miss seeing the grace of God that provided the meal. You miss seeing your amazing brothers and sisters that have much to offer you. And in their context, he's talking to the rich. You rich, well-educated, cultured people, you have need for your brothers and sisters that are not like you. If you were discerning, you'd see them. You'd sit with them. You'd share what you have with them. You'd invite them to come to the table with you because it's not your table or their table or the host's table. It's the Lord's table to eat the Lord's Supper. And if they were late, for whatever reason, they were late, you'd wait for them. And you'd have food and drink waiting for them when they got there. And not just the leftovers. You'd put the end cut to the side. If you don't know what an end cut is, you'd put the best steak to the side. The expensive salmon. Supper time ought to be a time to look in and a time to look around. And it ought to be a wonderful time because it's not our supper, but it's the Lord's. And he knows how to care for the people at his table. Paul's admonition to the Corinthians is not just so they'll experience all the good things Jesus has provided, but that's true. He doesn't want them to miss out on any of that, but also so that they'll avoid apparently what has already happened to some in their community. Look at verse 27 again. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. Let a person therefore examine himself before he eats and drinks. If anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, if anyone does that, they drink judgment on themselves. This is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. That's not metaphorical. The reason looking in and looking around is important is if we don't, there will be consequences. Have you ever thought what it means to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, who that's talking about? Sometimes we, we uh, will think, oh, it's, it's just those that aren't saved, right? So we want to fence the table, we say, some traditions. And you want to, it sounds like, hey, if you're not a Christian this morning, we would ask that you just pass on the bread and the cup. And that's not just for us, that's for you, because we want to respect your beliefs and where you're at. But just take this time to consider what you've heard. And, and if you repent of your sins and become a Christian, then of course you're welcome. But this is a table that the Lord has prepared for his people. And we say that so that no one comes and receives and thinks that by doing it, they are now okay with God. We want it to be a heart thing. And we think that's the people that we want to help not take it in an unworthy manner. And that may very well be part of it. We tend to think of it like this too, like we do most of our... Uh, things through our, our worldview as individual sins that I need to repent of before I come to the Lord's Supper, past sins I need to confess to God. Again, this is right and legitimate, and I can't think of a better time to repent of your sins than at the Lord's Supper. It's a great time. But if we've heard Paul this morning, we can't escape his turning our attention to the community as the primary application of what it means to come in an unworthy manner. Our present attitudes toward and treatment of others in the body 
Repentant sinners are beckoned to come to the table, come to the supper, come to the Lord. No matter how dark your sin, no matter how far you feel from God, they're not the ones coming in an unworthy manner. No repentant sinner is coming in an unworthy manner. They're not the ones who should refrain from taking the Lord's Supper next Sunday night at the meal or December 1st in our morning services. Who then should refrain from the Lord's Supper? Who would be unworthy in their manner of taking it? What's Paul talking about? Again, if we hear him, I think we can say it's those who think themselves better than others for any reason. I think we could apply it that way. Be it social class, race, gender, age, intellect and education, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. If the church has these divisions, if you're contributing to a divided body because you think you're better than someone else, Paul would say, how dare you eat the bread and drink the cup? You're walking in contradiction to what this whole meal is about. It's about the grace of Jesus. That grace should take away our pride. And that's exactly what causes divisions, isn't it? Pride. And if pride goes unchecked, if we don't examine and judge ourselves, we will be judged. And see, I thought I was picking the easier part of 1 Corinthians 11 when I avoided head coverings. But this has turned out to be quite a challenge. If our pride goes unchecked, if we don't examine ourselves, we don't judge ourselves, we will be judged as those guilty or liable for the body and blood of Jesus. That's what verse 27 says. If we walk in pride, again, not, not just struggle with, with forgiving people, not just struggle in the Christian life, but if that's who we are, if we think we're better than others, any others in the body, we're effectively leaving the Lord's side and aligning ourselves with the rulers of the world that crucified the King of glory. That makes us vulnerable to the judgment of God, which for some in Corinth led to their being weak, ill, and in some cases dying. Pride is completely inconsistent with the gospel, and it must be dealt with, so please... Deal with it before the Lord deals with you because of it. It's a hard word, isn't it? It is. And I don't exempt myself from this this morning. All week I was feeling the weight of delivering this word. But yesterday I felt the weight of hearing this word for myself. I... I'll tell you, before God, in, in my conscience, I don't look down on poor people. I don't look down on women. I don't look down on people that are a different race than I am. But you know who I do look down on? Those that do. Those I deem haters, small-minded, judgmental, bigoted, racist, sexist, ignorant idiots. Right? Right? And what I feel for them, I would like to think it's righteous anger, but that's not what it is. It's not. It's judgment. I despise them 
I look down on them. I think I'm better than them. And what they're guilty of, I am too. Pride. Friends, God is so kind and gracious and forgiving and merciful, and I hope you rest in that. I hope that holds you. He is all of those things, but he won't look at us in our pride and do nothing. He won't sit by idly as his son's body is mistreated and brushed aside. He loves us too much to leave us to ourselves. He will discipline us, even severely, if that's what it takes to spare us from being condemned along with the world. Like, us, like the Corinthians, us Christians today, we make a mess of things, don't we? We turn grace into competition. We, we take spiritual gifts and make them an opportunity for the flesh. We build our own little kingdoms instead of working for the kingdom of God. But Jesus, his selfless sacrifice, that's what delivers us from ourselves, that crushes our pride. That's what gives us hope. It's the only thing that does. No matter where you find yourself today, no matter how despicable and arrogant and self-righteous and better than others you think you are, Jesus says to you, to all of us here, it's time for supper, so get cleaned up. Let's hear this again, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Messed up you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your great name. Amen.